1986 was a very important year. I was not born that year. Other people were. That's okay. Um, but it was the year when Halley's Comet passed by the last time. The next time Halley's Comet is coming is 2061, so get your plans ready. So in 1986, my family um, decided to take a road trip to Big Bend to see Halley's Comet. And this was, um, I was the youngest, I have two older siblings, and uh, my mom's brother had two sons, and so I think we went as a whole crew as a caravan out to West Texas. Um, I don't have a lot, of, so I was three at the time of this. I don't have a ton of memories, but it is the most memorable road trip in my life. I was, most of the road, for a lot of part, it was me sitting on one side. On the other side was my cousin Ross, who's six months older than me. He played offensive lineman for Rice, so he was already a pretty big dude at three. <laughs> and then my sister, who was nine years older than me, so at that point she was 11, um, an 11-year-old girl, who you've met one before, and <laughs> loves to be next to her cousin and her brother. <laughs> so... As, as we were going, and most of the, the memory has been, has been fed back to me um, in passing, but apparently, at some point, before we got there, my cousin Ross and I were feeling kind of carsick. Um, oh, no. Yeah, 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 that happened at the exact same time. Um, and we didn't want to get the car dirty, so there was this, my nice sister, right in the middle. So we <laughs> That was a bad road trip. <laughs> it's cool to see the comment, but especially for my sister. Um, she does not remember it well. Uh, <laughs> one of, but I, I tell that story to, to enter one of the, the worst road trips ever recorded was in a short story by Flannery O'Connor. Um, and if you were an English major, you've read this before. Uh, but it's the story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. And it was written in 1953. Um, Flannery O'Connor was a Catholic who lived in the South, but so wrote about the South, um, and wrote about the Christ-haunted South, that Christ haunted over the South and over the ways, this is in the early 50s, um, over what was going on. So this is a story about a family road trip, and, um, and there's Bailey and Bailey's mom, who's just referred to Bailey's mom or grandmother, I'm going to call her Ethel. Um, <laughs> Ethel was apparently a popular name in 1892, and I'm assuming that's when she was born. And so her name is Ethel, and, and so the kids, one of the kids is named John Wesley. Um, another kid I, is, is there, but they, they're arguing and fighting, and they're going on this road trip. And the story starts off like this really slow middle, um, and it's like a simmering pot of water. And then like, you see the first couples going, and there's a little conflict going on. And eventually they kind of argue about where they're going, and argue about which way to turn. And eventually, what happens really dramatically is, is that there's this wreck. And the car flips over three times. And Ethel, the grandmother, it was kind of her fault. Um, and her daughter-in-law is injured, and so she doesn't know what to say. And she's just, like, really frustrated. And everyone's really frustrated. And they get out of the car. Um, and then they meet this man who's called the Misfit. <coughs> the Misfit was introduced earlier in the story as a man who broke out of prison. Who was a murderer who broke out of prison. Okay? So, yeah, this is... This is Easter today, guys. <laughs> All right, so one of the first things Ethel says to the misfit is, if you would pray, the lady said, Jesus would help you. That's right, the misfit said. Well, then why don't you pray, she asked, trembling with delight. 
I don't want no help, he said. I'm doing all right by myself. It goes on. She says, again, exhorts him to call on Jesus. And the misfit said, yes, um, Jesus thrown everything off of balance. Again and again. So by this time, the rest of the family has been dragged into the woods. Jesus, Ethel cries. You've got good blood, I know. You wouldn't shoot a lady. I know you come from nice people. Pray, Jesus. You ought not to shoot a lady. I'll give you all the money I got. And then, the misfit says, Jesus was the only one who ever raised the dead. The misfit continues, and he shouldn't have done it. He'd thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but to throw everything away and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. By killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness. And then, Ethel says, scared, not knowing what she's saying, maybe, maybe he didn't waste the death. And the misfit says, I wasn't there, so I can't say he didn't. I wished I'd been there. And ain't right, I wasn't there, because if I had been there, I would have known. Listen, lady, he said, if I had been there, I would have known, and I wouldn't be like I am today. My friends, this is the end of a, a sermon series here at Berkeley called The Deep End. We've been looking at different places when life feels overwhelming. Today is the deep end of death staring you in the face. And we have these two characters in this story that I'm just drawn to again and again. People like, like Ethel, who wear piety as a garment. Jesus refers to this as a whitewashed tomb in Matthew 23. He says, how terrible it will be for you, legal experts and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside they are full of dead bones and all kinds of filth. In the same way, you look righteous to people, but inside you are all full of pretense and rebellion. Then there is the misfit, the opposite. He looks like pretense and rebellion. He looks exactly like it. But he understands the stakes involved with Jesus. He understands it. He sees it, the power of resurrection, but he sees it as untrue. The misfit and Bailey's mom are both wrong, but the misfit is closer to the truth. He is like a twisted version of Thomas. Thomas, next week in our, our reading, is about the disciple who doesn't see Jesus first. And so says, unless I touch the wounds in his palms and touch the wound at his side, I will not believe. That's what the misfit says. If I had seen Jesus rise from the dead, I would turn my life around. But I didn't see it, so I'm just going to live this life of meanness. We may relate to Ethel, but that doesn't make her good. We may be disgusted by the misfit, but that doesn't make him bad. He gets it. He sees the heart of the matter, but goes in the other direction. For Ethel, Jesus is a way to feel better than other people in her life. Jesus is a way to get out of bad situations. She uses Jesus to try and calm the situation, but when it's not going her way, she drops him. 
But it all turns on this one event, on these past three days, on resurrection. If he'd done the things he said he did, then it's nothing but to do, to lay down our things and follow him. The misfit sees the stakes, but he does not go far enough. He understands the consequence of resurrection, but he doesn't know the reality of what happened at Good Friday. Resurrection doesn't overlook who we are. Resurrection isn't about saying, okay, you're good enough. Move along, move along. It is not a lark or a flip of a coin or a cosmic bet. Resurrection changes the directions of our life. It occurs at the worst of times to offer us the best. As Julian of Norwich said, the worst thing we possibly could have done, we did by killing Jesus, by killing the creator. The worst thing. By killing him on the cross. And yet from this worst thing that could possibly happen, the greatest thing that could ever happen has happened, for God has raised the dead and offered us eternal life. This has happened through the same event. None of us at our worst have ever killed our creator. Ethel didn't do that. The misfit didn't do that. All the ways we harm ourselves and harm others have been consumed in this cosmic harm and been transformed on this day. For death itself no longer has command over this world. Death no longer is the limit of the possible. Love exceeds death. The two sure things in life, death and taxes, are both overturned by Jesus. (laughs) When Jesus is confronted by the coin and says, should I pay to Caesar? Should I pay the tax or should I pay it to the, the temple? He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Caesar does not have command over your soul. Your tax bill is not the final statement of who you are or what you are worth. In the same way, he overcomes death by resurrection. So our love of neighbor, our love of enemy, cannot be constrained by fear of death or by fear of taxes. We are freed from that. We don't need to be afraid of love. We don't need to be afraid of emptying ourselves of all but love. When we are empty, even, we are closer to God. When we have emptied ourselves for others in our lives, we are closer to God. As John Henry Newman said, Jesus, when he was nearest to his everlasting triumph, seemed to be farthest from triumphing. When he was nearest upon entering his kingdom and exercising all power in heaven and earth, he was lying dead in a cave with a rock. When we feel the furthest from God, when we feel the furthest from people in our life, so often we are the closest to God. We are the closest to the experiences of Good Friday. When we feel in our lives that we can't find God, that we don't know where God is, that we have these, maybe we have these memories, we're closer to the experiences of Holy Saturday, that day of the silence of God. When we are closest to the love of God, sometimes we feel far away. But that is the distance bridged by Christ on the cross and in the tomb. The distance between the injustices we see in this world and the justice we know that is possible. 
The distance between the pain we may feel or the pain we see on the faces of those whom we love in our life and the wholeness that we yearn for. The stones cry out. The stones cry out and our God hears their cries and our cries. And our God goes deeper than we expect. God does not come to continue the status quo of our existence. It's not to maintain the now for eternity, but to offer new life, abundant life. The resurrected body of Jesus looks different. The disciples don't recognize him at first. There's, there's on, his, on his walk to Emmaus, he's talking to people who walked with him before. He's walking all day with them, telling stories, and they do not recognize him. But he still has the scars on his side. The wounds of this life are not erased, but redeemed through the wounds of Christ's life. The tomb is empty. Love has conquered death and prepared the life for each of us to live now, not just in some future, but now. Each of us can start stripping away the not loves in our life. We can strip away the pride, the contempt, the jealousy, the envy, the things we don't need. We can be bolder because the risk of death has been taken away. We don't need to cling to those things anymore. Christ is risen. Everything has changed. Jesus is not a moral cudgel to keep the kids in line on a road trip. Jesus is not a cudgel to keep your servants in line. Jesus is the word of God made flesh for each of us, offered for us, killed for us, raised for us, preparing the way for us to live for others now. That is the offering of resurrected life to begin now. Not to anticipate in some future time, but today you can claim this now, that you are loved. You can go from this place knowing that you are loved. Free in God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.